I mean, look, obviously everybody agrees that for sort of scientific advancement and technology development, reproducibility is absolutely critical. In particular, sort of in the early stages of a, of a, a phenomena, especially as enigmatic as fusion or, or low energy nuclear reactions, Lenner, skepticism is important, but I think that there has been sort of a, a decadal dismissal of cold fusion. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. In this episode, I'm revisiting the topic of cold fusion with an MIT-affiliated researcher who's looking into the case for cold fusion. As you may recall, my previous review found that there are many anomalous results in the field that point to the potential for new physical phenomena. Pons and Fleischmann's premature announcement of cold fusion in 1989 led to a fury of failed replication attempts and a lot of damaged egos. The way it was handled in the news media and in scientific circles left a lingering stigma which prevented further investigations through what I would call normal academic means. Only now, decades after the initial event, has it become possible for career scientists to start re-examining the evidence while still retaining their positions albeit with the sanitized name of low-energy nuclear reactions instead of cold fusion. If you like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app and share the Rational View with your friends. Help me spread the word. Join my Facebook group, The Rational View, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Jonah Messenger is an interdisciplinary physicist, technologist, clean energy enthusiast, and eco-modernist. He's a doctoral candidate at the Cavendish Laboratory of Physics at the University of Cambridge and a researcher at MIT working on quantum coherent nuclear science in the U.S. Department of Energy ARPA-E Low Energy Nuclear Reaction Research Program. Jonah's research seeks to leverage quantum condensed matter physics to develop novel technologies that harness the energy of the nucleus. He's a non-resident senior energy analyst at the Breakthrough Institute, a consultant with the Anthropocene Institute, and a One Young World ambassador. A Udall scholar, Jonah earned his master's in energy and bachelor's in physics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Jonah, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks so much for having me, Al. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much. So you, you actually contacted me uh, regarding your, your work after I published a series of podcasts investigating the claims of cold fusion supporters. So are you directly researching low-energy nuclear reactions for your PhD work right now? Yeah, so it's it's not my PhD uh, dissertation work. I'm working on sort of X-ray detectors uh, for my dissertation at uh, at Cambridge. But uh, about a, just over a year ago, I, I went to my first sort of cold fusion conference, um, and I met with some of the researchers there and, and was sort of... Um, Still sort of in my uh, learning phases, um, but was really sort of taken by some of the theoretical concepts that were being presented. Um, and so I started to, to collaborate and work with, uh, with these researchers at MIT, um, people, like, people like Peter Hagelstein, uh, Florian Metzler, and others. 
Um, and then uh, at that same conference in Mountain View uh, last August um, in 2022, um, the Department of Energy announced um, that uh, the ARPA-E, so sort of the innovation arm of the Department of Energy, uh, sort of akin to the DARPA program at the Defense Department, that they were going to sure. actually start a, a research pro- program. And, and so I was asked uh, to, to help out in, in, in sort of applying for that program. We got the grant. Uh, last March, and so I'm helping uh, uh, with isotopic analysis uh, for that for that research effort. Oh, very cool! So, at what at what point in your career did you become interested in, in looking into cold fusion, and why did you decide to go to this conference? It's a great question. Um, it's, it's a little bit funny, actually. So, I, I was finishing up my my bachelor's and master's at uh, Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, um, and I, I sort of knew that a, a PhD was in my was in my future, but but I, I sort of decided to um, take some time in between my my undergrad and master's work and my and my PhD work, um, and so I joined the Breakthrough Institute, which is an eco modernist think tank based in Berkeley, California, and sort of we basically believe in technological solutions to environmental problems. And um, one of the board members there, Ross Kongenstein, um, was on a Google research project. Um, reinvestigating uh, cold fusion, which I think lasted from like 2014, 2015 to 2019. And I was actually looking for a different article of his that he had wrote about climate change in, in IEEE. Um, and then I came up with, uh, I came across this Nature Perspective article. I think the title was uh, Revisiting the Cold Case of Cold Fusion. And so <laughs> my, my initial reaction was, you know, what in the world is Ross doing working on cold fusion? Um, and so, but I, you know, I read mm-hmm. the paper and uh, I, I talked to some of his co-authors and, and and started to read some of the literature. I read a 2004 Department of Energy report or report prepared for the Department of Energy, sort of synthesizing some of the work that had happened uh, in the pre- prior decade, post uh, the 1989 Fleischmann and Pons um, cold fusion uh, situation, and um, you know there was about sort of six months of uh, six or seven months or so of sort of reading papers as best as I could. Um, with the time that I had and sort of not being quite sure what to make of the field. It's, it's um, some of it's quite enigmatic and, and uh, the, the, you know, sort of purported uh, observables are, are disparate and reproducibility is a challenge. It's really just sort of hard to make sense of the field and, and sort of tie mm-hmm. together all of these sort of purported anomalies um, that go well beyond sort of the conventional um, understanding of what sort of the claims of cold fusion are, which is that, you know, in an electrolysis cell, you generate more heat than, than uh, uh, thermal power, than, than electrical power input into the into the electrolysis cell, um, and uh, and that, I mean that's what I understood the claims of cold fusion to be. But I came to find sure. many sure. different claims, uh, different observables, some far more compelling than than excess heat. Um, but it was still sort of just really hard to wrap my head around it all. And I knew that this cold fusion conference was coming up, so uh, breakthrough uh, uh, sent me, and there was a couple of presentations there that were scientifically super rigorous and, and very convincing. Um, particularly Eric okay. Zeme, uh, Eric Zeme had a really nice presentation on energetic alpha particle emission. Um, and, okay. uh, that was for his thesis at the university of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign actually coincidentally. Uh, um, uh, and then, but then also sort of, uh, uh Nicola Galvanado, who's one of the people that I'm working with, uh, um, at MIT, he presented some work that, uh, based off, based off of, uh, Peter Hagelstein's, um, based off Peter Hagelstein's theoretical work, and he's been working in this field for about you know, thirty some some odd years. 
And it was the first time where I sort of was able to process some of these. It was the first sort of theoretical framework that, you know, um, well, not finished, you know, but it, it was the first time that I could sort of start to see how some of these seemingly impossible problems that face cold fusion from a theoretical basis might actually be not so impossible. Um, and so that mm-hmm. was sort of what, what, what really, uh, that coupled with a, a series of experimental reports that were, um, you know, there was no light bulb moment, but there were just a few draw drop to the floor moments where you know, I was sort of reading a paper and, you know, yeah. thinking that shouldn't be possible. <laughs> so, I mean, the the Nature Perspectives article, the 2019, I guess it was, I mean, they didn't come out saying that cold fusion is real. Correct. They basically weren't able to find anything reproducible. Is that, like, can you maybe summarize what their findings were? Just yeah. So we can get a kind of a grounding. Yeah. So, so they, they ran several experiments. They ran electrolysis experiments. They ran uh, glow discharge experiments. They ran, um, uh, you know, with a particle accelerator. Um, uh, where they would accelerate particles into metal hydrides. And you're correct. They didn't, they didn't find any evidence for cold fusion. Um, and their, I mean, their sort of nature perspective article was in, in a sense sort of explaining why they were doing this research in the first place. Um, and reproducibility is not, um, a new problem to this field. Um, but I think, I think my perspective on, on the importance of reproducibility and especially at what stage of a scientific phenomena reproducibility. I mean, look, obviously everybody agrees that for sort of scientific advancement and technology development, um, reproducibility is absolutely critical. Um, but in particular, sort of in the early stages of, uh, of a, a phenomena, especially as enigmatic as fusion or, or low energy nuclear reactions, Leonard, um, uh, I think it's a mistake, uh, to sort of be overly dismissive or, um, you know, skept- skepticism is important, but I think that there has been sort of a, a decadal dismissal of, of 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 cold fusion, in part based on based on grounds of a lack of reproducibility. But as as uh, uh, my, my colleague at MIT, Dr. Florian Metzler, as he's pointed out, um, uh, the emergence of the transistor actually was a, a quite uh, anomalous phenomena at first, before um, it was sort of conclusively proven and demonstrated by uh, Bell Labs in 1947. But before that, there were, you know, uh, the, I think the first uh, patent for effectively a transistor was like 1926. Um, and there's some really mm-hmm. juicy quotes from like Wolfgang Pauli, um, where he says something like, you know, one shouldn't work on semiconductors. It's a messy business. And who knows if they're real or not? You know, so th- I think there are some, <laughs> there are some historical precedents for sort of phenomena where uh, it's hard to reproduce. But um, in part, there are hidden variables that are hard to control. And, and, and I think we see that a lot in this field. That's true. But I mean, we, we also know that there's a lot of things that are pseudoscience and that are not real that also have the same characteristics sure. of irreproducibility and, you know, researchers fooling themselves rather than actually making good measurements. So, you know, some, some care and skepticism is, is necessary, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, you're right that there are you know, this, this field has been kind of stigmatized over the years after the Pons and Fleischmann announcement. And so, you know, people have steered away from it. And, you know, mainstream academia, for example, 
it's kind of an anathema to, to take this on. Did, did you not get the memo that this was a career stifling move? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, a mentor of mine who's sort of got a very technical background, he was, I, when, I, when I told him that I was sort of looking into this field and I thought that there might actually be some, some there there, we got on a Zoom call and, and the first thing he said was, uh, Jonah, I hear you're flirting dangerously close with cold fusion. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, sure. I, but I think, um, you know, I think that there are, I think that there are experimental reports over the decades from dozens of different research groups using different experimental setups that all show, well, sorry, not all show, but, but some of them show, um, you know, sort of compelling nuclear anomalies and different kinds of data as well. So I think there's some sort of converging experimental evidence that there's something there. And then I think that there are also some good theoretical motivations as well, which is historically, I think, been, you know, one of the, um, cer- certainly one of the, um, sort of main reasons for skepticism. And, and, yeah. and I, I try and say as much as possible, sort of, I, I very much understand the skepticism. I think the skepticism is good and healthy. Yeah. Um, and certainly for a plasma physicist, I mean, this, this, this must make no sense. Um, uh, and so I, I can understand that there are some sort of pedag- pedagogical barriers for sure. Um, but I think ultimately, um, you know, um, I, th- I think, you know, we should all sort of work on what, what captures our interests and what we think is sort of scientifically interesting. And then I think now, um, quite frankly, I think it helps that I, I can now sort of point to the fact that, you know, it's not just me or, or sort of the people that go to the Cold Fusion Conference, but, you know, Biden's principal fusion advisor, Dr. Scott Sue, was, you know, and, 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 and Dr. Evelyn Wang, who's the director of RPE, they, you know, sort of were sufficiently convinced that there was enough, enough there that it merited a research program. And so, you know, I think, I think, um, I mean, I, th- I think even when I talk to people who are quite skeptical, I, there are certainly some people who, who will be sort of, um, you know, not very, you know, collegial or, 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 or nice, but, but I, but I, but I think that there's a lot of people who, you know, while, while they may be skeptical or, or totally fine to, sort of hear me give, give a pitch or, or sort of just to talk about why I think there's something there that merits my time. Yeah. There, do you think that there's still pressure to, in academic circles at least, to, to stay away from cold fusion? I know, you, you know you, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek message from your supervisor, um, but do you think there is pressure like to stay away? Sure. I mean, you know... I, 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 I hesitate in answering this question because I, I can go, I can take it both ways, you know? So I think on the one hand, um, there is still a lot of sort of cultural, there's sort of a lot of cultural dynamics here that still very much treat cold mm-hmm. fusion or Leonard or whatever you want to call it as sort of a pseudoscience and not serious and, you know, um, could hurt the reputation of an institution or, or, or these types of things. But I think yeah. there's a lot of young scientists in particular um, who, you know, maybe didn't come around uh, or didn't come up, or, uh, you know, uh, with that sort of backdrop. Um, and I also think, and this is something that I think will be, um, I mean, this is somewhat, somewhat of a prediction, but I think, and, and we, st- and if you look at the history of the transistor, there, there's some of this too, where, where, um, sort of there, there are these anomalous effects and there's this sort of emergent field that is somewhat taboo. Um, but then sort of in parallel, there are other scientific domains, other fields that sort of end up converging to the same point, right? So for the transistor, it was sort of, you know, electron band theory, single crystal growth, these types of things. And I, I think that in the case of Lenner, um, 
you know, I read papers in nature physics that I go, hmm, I think that might be like quite relevant where, so for example, there was this nature physics paper by mm-hmm. Chumakov et al. And, and they show that by coherently exciting iron 57 nuclei, and they get excited and then they'll emit, ga- they'll emit character, characteristic, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, gamma emissions, um, um, or sorry, x-rays, but by coherently exciting, um, at first two and then five and then 10 and then 20 on, uh, iron 57 nuclei in an ensemble, the, um, the decay of those excited iron 57 nuclei is accelerated. So, um, for example, just to sort of put some rough number, I mean, this is sort of, these are just made up numbers, but if you have an iron 57 nuclei and you excite it, um, and, mm-hmm. uh, let's say it would decay, the decay rate would be once per second. And then if you excite yep. 10 of them together, you would classically expect that the decay rate of the ensemble is just 10 per second, just 10 times one. But actually, um, there is sort of very uncontroversial physics where the decay rate can be accelerated above that up to n squared. So up to a hundred per second. And, um, so hmm. this, this nature physics paper showed a 15 fold acceleration of the decay rate going from an ensemble of two to 20. And I think that that sort of coherent nuclear science arena will end up sort of actually kind of converging quite nicely, I think, with an, with an hmm. explanation for Leonard. Interesting. So is that like, um, is that similar to like lasing in, in photonics, like where you have stimulated emission of photons from excited atoms or molecules? Yeah, no, that, that, that's the right idea. I think it's, I think the, I think the math is going to be somewhat different. So I don't think that it's, um, I don't think a stimulated emission, I don't think this is sort of like stimulated emission, but it's sort of ex- like accelerated spontaneous emission. Um, and so there, there's a, this is sort of, this field is, referred to as super radiance, where if you coherently excite a radiating um, species, um, as the ensemble gets larger, the decay rate uh, 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 accelerates. So um, by coherently exciting a nucleus, you're pumping energy into it. Is that effectively changing the the, the energy level of the nucleus? I, I think maybe it's worth, certainly for the listeners, to sort of back up for a second and just say a quick bit about fusion. Yeah, and explain, no, you know, maybe part of why cold fusion is so um, hard to sort of grapple with. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of bare bones, um, uh, you know, nu- nuclei are, uh, are protons and neutrons held together. And uh, the reason why, you know, they don't break up because they have all these positive charges and there's this electromagnetic repulsion is because of the, the strong nuclear force. So residual force from the strong force that acts at short distances to bind these protons and neutrons, these nucleons together. And some nuclei are held together more tightly than others, sort of bound more compactly. Um, particularly iron and nickel are very, very tightly bound. And I, I assume this will be sort of well-known for most of your listeners, but just in case for some it isn't. Um, and so for lighter nuclei, if you bring them together and they fuse, the mass of the resulting nucleus will be ever so slightly smaller than the sum of the masses of the of the two reacting nuclei, and that missing mass gets converted to pure energy, and that's why people want to do want to do fusion. And that's that's using um, Einstein's equation of E equals m c squared, where m is the mass, E is the energy, and c is the speed of light, which is a huge number. And you square that huge number, multiply it by the mass difference, and that's the energy that is released in fusion. Exactly right. So that small little mass gets multiplied by two speeds of light, lots of energy. Um, 
Now, uh, the problem is, is, of course, that if you want to bring two nuclei together, they're both positively charged, like charges repel. And so there's this electrostatic repulsion, this Coulomb barrier is what we call it. And mm-hmm. so in conventional sort of plasma fusion science, the, the name of the game is get these nuclei together, pump a bunch of kinetic energy into the system. That kinetic energy can sort of overcome or allow, uh, you know, or push back against the, the Coulomb repulsion, get the nuclei close enough together, and then the strong nuclear force can do the rest. And so, I mean, the, fu- there's, so there's, um, I guess the other thing to say is, is that the uh, products from these fusion reactions are very well understood. It's, you know, plasma physicists have been working on this for decades. Um, uh, some, some of these fusion reactions have only sort of one pathway and there's only one set of products. And some of them have a few different pathways. But we know what the products are. We know what the different pathways are. We know how likely each of those pathways are. And we know what the energies of these products should be. And cold fusion, sort of tautologically, is hard to, um, I, I think it's, I think there's sort of three problems, right? We've already touched on one, the reproducibility of the experiments. Um, the second one is that sort of, even in the name, it tautologically is, doesn't make sense, right? Cold fusion. No, you need to get it hot. You need to supply lots of kinetic energy so that you can, uh, overcome the these particles together. Exactly. Um, and then the third one is, is that the cold fusion experiments. So again, most people think that cold fusion has no, radiation emission characteristics. And that's, that's at least, you know, regardless of what you think of the literature, the, the claims in the cold fusion community are, are not that. There are, there are claims of neutron emission, um, gammas, charged particles, et cetera. Um, but the, but the, but the claimed products don't line up with conventional, uh, fusion pathways. Okay. That so those was one are, of those the, are three central issues. That was one of the main, uh, criticisms of Pons and Fleischmann's original announcement is that the plasma physicist said, well, if it was making that much energy, they'd have been killed by the radiation. So obviously it's, exactly. it's not real. So, you know, it was poo-pooed and, and shut down relatively quickly because of that discrepancy. For sure. And, and look, again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. From, from a plasma physicist's perspective, I completely understand that reaction. And I mean, you know, it's funny. I don't really know exactly what I would have thought of uh, cold fusion exactly before uh, I started reading the literature, but that would probably have been, you know, that along with sort of the the cold nature of cold fusion, I mean, it would have been that probably would have been my reaction too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but one of the sort of fundamental assumptions that you make in a plasma um, is is that interacting nuclei, right? Those those two nuclei mm-hmm. that have the Coulomb repulsion are completely independent from other interacting nuclei in the plasma. And that makes sense. There's no coupling. There's, you know, those, those two reactions aren't talking to each other. Mm-hmm. But in a metal, that's not necessarily the case. And, and, and certainly, you know, muon catalyzed fusion is an example of, uh, that's actually where the original sort of usage of the term cold fusion comes from. And that's completely conventional physics. Uh, it was, I think, developed in the 50s. I want to say at Los Alamos. And, and that's basically where you, you, you fire, you generate a muon, you fire it at a, at a target, and the muon kicks out the electron, but because it's so much heavier, it brings the, the, you know, hydrogen isotope nuclei, uh, closer together, and, and, and you can tunnel through the Coulomb barrier, and you get some fusion reactions. And, and that's and a lot a of quantum of mechanics for, for the listeners. But a muon is basically a really heavy electron, and it changes the, the quantum interactions between these nuclei so they can snuggle up really close. Exactly. And, um, and, uh, there's a variety of reasons why that wasn't pursued commercially. Um, although there are some really interesting folks at NK Labs, that would be actually another good uh, 
good folks to talk to and, and they're working on a, they, th- they think they have a, a, a new approach to muon catalyzed fusion. But in any event, um, but, but in that case, you, you see the conventional fusion products, um, right? So that's, that's a, uh, you know, effectively sort of like a low energy nuclear reaction that is, uh, um, that doesn't sort of have anomalous, anomalous, uh, fusion reaction products. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in some of the theor- early theoretical papers that sort of, uh, I, I wrote in a piece for the Breakthrough Institute called Fusion Runs Hot and Cold. Um, you know, uh, I wrote about this and, and, and sort of that ostensibly will preclude the possibility of cold fusion, even though actually, if you read those papers, it's not quite what they say. What they actually say is, is that the fusion rate that they calculate in the most optimistic scenarios is essentially unobservable, right? So you'd have to right. wait way too long to, to see a spontaneous, you know, I mean, in principle, in, in a bottle of hydrogen gas, you know, there could be a possibility of a fusion reaction. You just have to wait, you know, 10 to the 60 years or something crazy. You know? <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, and so in, in, the idea, I think, is in, in metal, the the environment of the nuclei is changed by uh, being stuffed into a very tight space. And this is uh, ana- analogous to the muon cat- catalyst uh, in that it gets the nuclei close together, helps overcome that Coulomb barrier that the electrostatic repulsion is pushing them apart by stuffing them into a metal. And, you know, maybe there is something that there that would in- increase the reaction rate above current calculations. Right. And so, um, and, and the other thing that people will so that, that's a common sort of uh, assessment of what the theoretical motivation here is. And the, and then people will say, well, there's actually something else you need to, because if you do the calculations on that, Al, it's, it's unobservable. Cold fusion, you would not expect it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then people say, okay, well, then there's some sort of electrons, free electrons in, in, in the, in, in the, uh, uh, in, in a metal that can sort of screen the reactions. And so for the listeners, what I mean by that is, just like in the case of the muons, the electrons can sort of, you can think about it in a very classical picture, get in between the two nuclei, and then that sort of shields some of that positive Coulomb repulsion, and it can get a little bit closer. But even still, um, that actually helps a lot, uh, uh, orders of magnitude, um, but it's still way, way too far off. And, and, and a lot of these theoretical papers, they calculated some of these screening effects, many body screening effects. Mm-hmm. But what they didn't, what they didn't look at is many body fusion react or sort of um that's not um uh they they, they assumed a two body fusion reaction so essentially they were still just assuming that the only um sort of relevant picture here is looking at two particles in isolation just like you would in a plasma um but actually um there's a lot of degrees of freedom in this condensed matter metallic environment and so you know in short um the theoretical framework that really sort of gripped me and and started to paint a picture that, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. There's no sort of accepted theory for cold fusion or Lenner, but it's starting to sort of connect some of the dots is instead of thinking about this as just merely some sort of collision uh, between two, between two particles. If instead, if you think about a pair of hydrogen mm-hmm. as an excited state of helium, and, 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 and so, and then there's a little bit of a jump there that you're making, but I think mm-hmm. it's sort of a reasonable, a reasonable jump to make. Um, that it, it is in the extreme an excited state of helium. So let's take, for example, the, the classic sort of cold fusion fuel, deuterium, which is just a, uh, a heavy, heavy hydrogen. So the proton, the nucleus is a, a proton and a neutron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and call it for short, a, a deuteron is the nucleus of deuterium. 
And sort of two deuterons is sort of like an excited state of helium-4, which is two protons, two neutrons. So we're conserving all these, uh, um, you know, the number of protons and the number of neutrons. And so right. in that case, in that, in that sense, you would expect that there would be some sort of spontaneous decay rate, i.e. fusion rate, of the pair of deuterons to the helium-4. You want to reduce the potential energy, and so there would be you'd expect there to be some decay. Now the problem still remains that that decay is severely suppressed because of the Coulomb barrier. Right. Now the the next sort of um, sort of step here, and, and I, I should also mention that um, um, sort of uh, we describe this in, in a little bit more detail in our technical manuscript that we used as our you know in our application to RFE, and we've posted that publicly. Um, on an archive for, for anyone who's interested um, mm-hmm. to see, and we try and connect it with some of the experimental evidence. But basically, um, some of these degrees of freedoms, for example, like phonons, so oscillations of, of these metal nuclei, um, sort of would be experienced by these pairs of hydrogen as large oscillations in the local electromagnetic field. A large charged particle, or large charged nucleus oscillating back and forth. And the idea is, is that if these phonons throughout the, uh, the volume of the lattice are coherent, sort of pulsing together, then you can start to paint a picture where there's lots of these essentially excited states of helium, pairs of deuterons, mm-hmm. in the metal lattice that are now not independent of one another. They're talking to each other. They can transfer energy between one another. And there starts to be some sort of like a delocalization of these excited states. And just like in the case of that uh, nature physics paper that I, I, I mentioned, mm-hmm. where they used a, a coherent X-ray laser to coherently excite um, uh, multiple iron-57 nuclei, and then they witnessed an acceleration of the decay beyond what you would classically expect. So too, in this case, uh, we might expect a acceleration of the decay rate of the ensemble of the collection of all of these deuteron pairs all these excited states of helium the advantage here is is that the deuterium's already excited right or uh, the the helium's already excited because you have these deuterons now uh you know metal hydride experts will will note that uh these deuterons uh, don't pair up naturally right they occupy different sites in the lattice on their own um another sort of funny thing here is is that if, if you just have a very sort of uh, a metal hydride or metal deuteride, I guess in this case, sort of in equilibrium, the deuterons in the metal are actually further away from each other than they are in, in D2 gas, right? So, um, but if you have uh, vacancies of these, of the metal in these metal deuterides, mm. you have a missing, missing metal uh, nuclei, it's conceivable that two deuterons could sort of go into that and, and form a pair in, in that, in that vacancy. And so the okay. idea is that if you take a, a metal hyd- metal deuteride far out of equilibrium, you can protect and, and you stimulate coherent phonons, and there's a variety of different ways you might go about doing that. Then you might have these pockets in in a metal volume where there are sufficient uh, number of vacancies. There's lots of pairs of deuterons occupying these sites. They're coupled to one another. And you can have the acceleration of the decay or the acceleration of the fusion reaction that might overcome the Coulomb period, or at least get you within spitting distance. And so this starts to paint the picture of A, th- really this sort of answers um, or starts to, uh, you know, paint the picture of how you could overcome, overcome the Coulomb barrier at low energies. 
it also mm. starts to sort of get at why reproducibility might be such a challenge because it's very easy to sort of lose this coherence, lose this, um, uh, these domains, these pockets where all the fusion react or the uh, sort of interacting nuclei are talking to each other and where you might yes. get this acceleration of the decay. And if holes in the lattice are necessary for this to happen, then you, you need a particular preparation of the metal to have those particular holes. And, and I, I see, you know, the way you're describing this, it has, it, it gives me a, an, an, a feeling as similar to what I, I get when I look at like, um, room temperature superconductivity, where you have these delocalized quantum wave functions of the electron Cooper pairs uh, reaching out through the solid and being mediated exactly. by the medium. Now you have really strange behavior that you wouldn't expect otherwise until you could you know, take into account how these things might travel through the, through the metal without being interrupted at all. So there are definitely um, precedents in physics for this sort of pairing up of distant particles in a solid uh, because of the regularity of it and the fact that things can resonate in phase. So it's really kind of cool that this is an, is a, is an explanation. So, I mean, how is, how is the research going? Have you, uh, have you had any successes in the lab? Are you working in the lab on, or is it mainly a theoretical research? No. So it's an experimental program. Um, um, the, there's experimental sort of labs being set up right now at MIT and that our uh, partner, um, um, uh, Ben Barrows from the U.S. Army is also working with us on this research project, and so he's he's had um, um, sort of a laser-based uh, uh, Lenner experiments going for about a year, year and a half now, and and these laser-based experiments um, just to sort of further illustrate what I mean by these sort of coherence effects. Usually, when we think about lasers and fusion, we're thinking about concentrating lots of really high-energy lasers right at a specific point to supply that kinetic energy. But here, actually, there, there have been a variety, uh, several, uh, and this might be actually sort of one of the reasons why we're interested in this experiment is because as far as reproducibility goes in this field, actually, this is sort of um, uh, one of the more, re seemingly one of the more reproducible experiments where, and it's really quite simple, you have a metal deuteride uh, in sort of maybe a few atmosphere of pressure, and you uh, irradiate it with a laser, low power, continuous wave, uh, wavelength laser, some, some, some pulse lasers, and you irradiate it for a long time, days, weeks. And, um, there have been several folks who have then looked at under an SEM image of the, so a scanning electron microscope of, uh, of the surface of these metal deuterides. And they see, um, really rather bizarre morphological features that weren't there prior to the experiment. They look like sort of like mini explosions, if you will, actually, uh, uh, um, on, on these surfaces. Mm -hmm. And then when you take EDX spectra, so energy dispersive X-ray spectroscopy, which can identify elements, um, you see that sort of within these craters or these micro explosion cavities, there's a whole bunch of different metals, nickel, titanium, chromium, zinc, that weren't there before, as far as we think, uh, before the experiment, um, that seemed to be there after the experiment. And now any good scientist will think, oh, well, this seems like contamination. This is probably some sort of uh, false signal. But then if you look outside of this uh, sort of morphological feature, 
you don't see any elemental signatures. Now, that's enough to get me interested. I don't think it's dispositive, but I think it's enough to get me interested that it looks to me like maybe, uh, and I should also mention that these anomalous uh, elements seem to look like fission pairs of, in this case, palladium, which is one of the sort of common metals used uh, sort of for, for metal hydrides and metal diterides. They seem to sort of pair up quite nicely, actually, as fission mm. pairs or fission daughter products of palladium. And again, it's not dispositive, um, but one of the things I, you know, I, my main sort of contribution to this research effort is isotopic analysis. And the reason why that's important is because um, metals, you know, sort of here on Earth, they have a natural isotopic ratio. So uh, elements are indexed by the number of protons in their nucleus, but elements can have a variety of different numbers of neutrons, different isotopes. And uh, the distribution, whether you're in the U.S. or in the U.K. or in Chile or wherever you are, will have the same, more or less, barring some sort of geological processes that take a long time, more or less the same isotopic distribution, the same frequency of different isotopes. Right. But if uh, a, a palladium nuclei in one of these samples was fissioning, then you would expect that these uh, elemental signatures, these elements, these anomalies, uh, would have a natural isotopic distributions. And so that's right. part of the reason why sort of we're really interested in a variety of different isotopic analyses partnering with, um, you know, sort of very, uh, you know, uh, institutions that have been doing these analyses, um, uh, you know, for decades um, to try and sort of uh, probe, probe these anomalies. But, but um, so these are some of the sort of types of experiments that are, we're interested in um, and, 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 and the types of quality of data that we're interested in collecting to really sort of paint a more comprehensive picture. You know, either this is contamination or or it's potentially a nuclear anomaly, and we want to sort of uh, figure that out. No, I certainly applaud the efforts to, to put some of this data on a more stable footing with uh, some good uh, reproducible analyses. Uh, it certainly is important to getting to the root of some of these anomalous results, because definitely that's one thing that I think most scientists would agree on today is that there are anomalous unexplained results that seem to continue to be popping up and more um, reputable labs have been doing some good studies on this showing that there are still things that they can't explain happening no one has yet been able to harness a reproducible reaction in a scientific paper Uh, there are companies that are trying to commercialize cold fusion based heaters that purport to deliver more heat energy than they take from the grid uh, but I haven't seen any um, good uh, studies or reviews proving that fact. Uh, some, you know, this field does uh, attract um, snake oil salesmen, and, and they certainly would glom on to buzzwords like cold fusion. Uh, do you know anything about the, the the commercialization efforts of cold fusion? Or is it is it real or is it a scam? Or yeah, so I I I, um, I, I know some of the people involved in some of the companies. My perspective on, on this is is my, my theory of change here is is that um, if there's really something here, then there will be a nuclear anomaly that needs to be published, and it needs to be published with very rigorous scientific standards in a mainstream peer-reviewed publication. And I think my 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 strong suspicion is that if and when that uh, anomaly happens, gets characterized and gets written up in a paper. If that happens, I think you'll see sort of the floodgates open and a lot of research groups that you never thought had any interest in cold fusion, and maybe they didn't, 
will start working on this. And that's ultimately what we need. We need a lot of scientific labs working on this. I don't, I try not to pay much attention to commercialization efforts, which doesn't mean that they're all sort of, uh, snake, uh, snake, you know, snake oil salesmen. Um, some certainly, you know, some certainly are. Um, but, but, but I think even if, even if there are some people who think they're doing good work could be, um, sort of, uh, um, seeing results that are actually the product of, um, of, uh, uh poor calibration, poor controls. Um, sure, there's really you. nothing there. They could also be seeing some anomalous effects themselves. I think my, I, I just, I don't try, I try not to spend my time in, in that arena because I think the most important thing is there are good labs working on this. There's rigorous scientists that are working on this. Although I would just say that I think actually the vast majority of this in the scientific community would be unaware or surprised at the fact that there are good labs, good scientists working on this. And I think that they would also be, um, except for some of these sort of like older, folks in the physics or chemistry community who maybe had heard that there were reports of neutron bursts from reputable labs uh, in the early 90s. Um, but most people, I think, would probably just associate cold fusion with a um, unre- unreproducible uh, report of excess heat by Fleischmann and Pons, and that's it, and no one saw anything yep. else after that. That's true. I mean, that, that is the prevailing view, I think, for people who haven't looked into it. And to, to a certain extent, the longer any of these um, com- companies go without providing a, a Nobel Prize winning paper, the more skeptical I become of their efforts because, you know, let's face it, some people just want to make money without actually doing the work. So there are a lot of that out there. We've seen companies, you know, faking it till they make money. For sure. There was, as I, I alluded to, uh, re- earlier, the, the recent announcement of room temperature superconductivity from, from researchers in South Korea. And they released their work on, uh, ARGZIV, on the ARGZIV preprint server. So this is a, a online server where you can release unreviewed research for the community to, to digest. And it was a huge announcement and they got lots of press coverage around the world. Uh, because obviously room temperature superconductivity is another one of these holy grails that if it happens, you, you're getting a Nobel Prize and you're changing the world. But it was subsequently found to be irreproducible, but doesn't seem to have stirred up the same fervor of stigma that the Pons and Fleischmann announcement got uh, back in 89. Do you think that the scientific establishment has learned a lesson from this? Do you think we're, we're more accepting or is, are we still in the same boat? No, I, I, I don't think so, actually. Um, I, I think, I think that the, I think that there are sort of real problems within science. Um, as it pertains to sort of dealing with anomalous phenomena that are just sort of beyond the pale of sort of maybe the current paradigm that, um, that, that struggle with reproducibility challenges. Again, I think in some cases, uh, sort of, uh, re- challenges with reproducibility are because we don't have a theoretical understanding of the phenomena at hand. I mean, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a super, con- a high temperature, you know, super conductivity expert or, and so I, I, but I think like maybe the best sort of tweet that I saw in the, and the fervor was, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but I think he's a XRD specialist at, uh, either Oxford or Harwell. I don't, I don't quite remember in the UK. And his, uh, his, um, he had a tweet where he was basically like, um, looking at the XRD pattern that they had published. That's X-ray and, diffraction. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. Um, and, uh, and, and sort of a, it's an analysis, a, a tool that can sort of, uh, 
uh, tell you about the structure of the crystal of the crystal lattice. And and he basically was uh, um, uh, saying that he he doesn't think that uh, he didn't think that the XRD pattern was very good. And if the XRD pattern is not very good, then you might not really know what you know if there is some sort of room temperature superconductor effect. And at the time, nobody really knew. And I think still there's some sort of question marks, although I haven't followed it very uh, carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you might not even know what the material that you're going for actually is. And so I, I think that was sort of like the most brilliant tweet because it was just sort of like, um, yeah, solid state physics is really messy, super challenging, really hard to reproduce results, even when you have the XRD pattern. And if you don't have the XRD pattern, then it's really hard. <laughs> um, but I think, I mean, I, I, I think that... Um, you know, there were some sort of people who were like, you know, three days or four days or whatever after those preprints were published were just sort of totally nasty, uncollegial. You know, the paper wasn't written well. Yeah, well, you know, maybe it's because English isn't their first language, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but I mean, th- there were problems, you know, with uh, like the y-axis of one of their uh, uh, figures was 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 not the right. Uh, the scale made it so that you couldn't really see if there was uh, if current, uh, um, uh, if re- resistance or resistivity fell to zero or not, uh, because, you know, the slope looks like it's zero, but maybe it's not zero. Um, so that there, there's a number of challenges like this, and there were sort of genuine critiques to make of the, of the preprints, and maybe even putting them in as preprints wasn't the right move. And I think actually one of the preprints was posted without the other co-authors approval and acknowledge, uh, or they weren't, they, they, they didn't know about it. Um, so I think there's a number of problems to, 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 uh, with, with with how that whole situation unfolded, but no, I, I think that there is sort of a fundamental um, conservatism in in science, um, and I think I think the other thing is is it's sort of it's I imagine it's quite difficult to know that you're being overly conservative as a community or sort of um, um, it, there's sort of I mean, there, there's some sort of like performative uh, uh, skepticism. Again, I think sort of like. Rigorous, there are people in the cold fusion community that are deeply, deeply skeptical. Some of the some of the folks I spoke to on the Google project or were affiliated with the Google project, deeply, deeply skeptical, but not dismissive. Very mm-hmm. intentional about doing really good work in that community, trying to reproduce results, trying to find, you know, um, results that appear to be anomalous but actually have prosaic explanations. Um, so I really appreciate that type sort of healthy skepticism. Yeah. I think there is a sort of social currency that you can gain in the scientific community by being sort of performatively skeptical or overly cynical. Um, and I, I think that's really deeply unhealthy and I don't really know what the solution to something like that is, but I think it's a deep cultural yeah. problem. Egos are, are still present in science, scientific discourse and egos get pushed out of joint. I, I, I do like the way that science is self-correcting and that eventually experimental data uh, will drive the community, but that gets delayed when leading thought thought leaders in the community have their egos out of joint. And totally. I think that has you know, held back this field uh, for a long time. And certainly it's present in just about every field. There are you know senior scientists whose word is, is taken as law. And if they say something is is not going to work, then it, it dissuades other people from working on it. And, you know, these people are sitting on the, the grant review committees as, as senior scientists. Uh, so junior scientists know not to be 
um, presenting abstracts or or, or pr- proposals that counter their views. So there is there is a human element to the to the science uh, that can slow the progress. I think, and and so I think we have to be very aware of of how egos can become involved and to take them out of the process if at all possible. Couldn't have said better myself. So this is great uh, to, to learn about uh, your investigations. When should we expect to, to hear results and, and papers published on, on these anomalous LENR or cold fusion effects? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, um, the, the research program, uh, we got awarded in March, but it only sort of first kicked off uh, a few weeks ago. So, um, and I, um, you know, I think we'll, 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 all, all I think we can say at this point is, is that we are committed to doing really, really good, rigorous science, characterizing uh, relentlessly all of our conditions. Um, and if we, you know, um, the other thing that I say is we're committed to publishing regardless of what the results are. So, you know, if 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 we don't see any anomalies, then it doesn't mean that the you know Leonard field is 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 uh, is has been disproven or you know what. But what it does mean is, is that because we're so committed to sort of very carefully characterizing um, uh, the structure of the materials, the conditions within the materials that we're um, inducing, which is very very tough business. But because we're so committed to that, hopefully the idea is, is that we can at least identify a region of the very vast uh, parameter space where we don't think any anomalies exist. And I think that that's an important scientific contribution, whether or not we see any sort of Leonard nuclear anomalies or not, um, trying to bring sort of really good characterization, trying to sort of either say there looks to be something here or we've really carefully uh, you know, analyzed this parameter space and, and we don't think that there's any anomalous activity going on. Well, best of luck on your investigations and best of luck on your PhD work as well. Thank you for coming and chatting with us today. For spending your time, I'll, I'll fire you a, a T-shirt uh, from the Rash oh, Review. Um, well, thanks, Al. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I think you do great stuff. And, and I think, um, you know, I, I, think I, I think I probably speak on behalf of uh, a lot of others in the, in the Leonard community that we thank you for sort of taking an interest uh, in our field. Oh, thank, thanks for coming on. Send me some, some references to, to chat with on future podcasts. I'd appreciate that. Will do. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.